Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to another episode of UK TV's crime podcast, A Stab in the Dark, where once again we slice open and forensically investigate the inner workings of crime fiction and TV crime drama. My name's Mark Billingham, and in this episode, we've travelled away from a stab in the dark's Hammersmith incident room to talk to one of this generation's biggest-selling and most respected crime novelists, Patricia Cornwell. Someone who's been credited with inspiring host of forensic crime dramas, from CSI to Dexter. I'll be talking to Patricia about her life and work, the new K. Scarpetta novel, Chaos, and how the world of forensics and technology has influenced her writing. We'll also be hearing from William Gaminara, star of the UK's hottest forensic series, Silent Witness, before ending up on some top crime book and drama suggestions from Patricia. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Welcome, Patricia. It's very Thank you. It's great to be here. Very nice to get a chance to talk to you. So, Chaos, your 25th K. Scarpetta novel. And if you add in the other novels, the Andy Brazil, Judy Hammer series, as well as your true crime books, you've been incredibly prolific over the years. What drives you to keep writing? I, that's a very good question. I think about that all the time. Why do I do this? Because, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing it, I, I want a break from it. I would say it's a vacation if I don't have to think about a book or, or sit at the computer. But yet if I go several days and I don't write, like when I'm on book tour, I actually start getting a little bit antsy because I think I have as much a need to do this as anybody would ever have to read it. And so I'm just one of these lucky people that people, you know, some people do read them and, and yet... I need to do it too. It's, um, I think I will always have to write books. I may not always have to write them as quickly as I've been doing it, but I need to tell a story. And what, what, what is telling stories anyway? It's taking the world around us and putting it into some organized format that makes a point that you think is important. So you're every bit as you know, twitchy about writing these stories as you were back when you wrote Postmortem. You're still keen to, to get them out there. I think I'm more twitchy about it than <laughs> I've ever been and more twitchy about everything than I've ever been because... You know, when you turn 60, and boy, that's a hard n- number to say. Um, You've said it, it's gone, we, it, we'll it's let gone. it go. Whew, got that over with. <laughs> but, you know, you, you realize it, life doesn't go on forever, and you don't know how many more years or decades you might be able to produce something that people still enjoy. So I want to hit the ground running harder than I ever have, because um, there's still a lot I have to say. 
And Scarpetta's obviously the character you you keep coming back to. You know, she's your you know she's your thing. She's your woman. She's my thing, and she's, she's not thing. getting any older. That's the good thing. I stopped that about ten years ago. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful it's thing wonderful. about fiction? It's, that is the one thing I can do. If only I could do that with myself. I hit that delete key, but it doesn't work when I look in the mirror. You right. know. <laughs> So there's still, there's still, still there. plenty of plenty of new stories, fizzing with new stories, new places to take Kay and Lucy and Pete and Benton. They're const- you know you're you're on tour now. You're you're promoting chaos. Are you already starting to you know are there things starting to, to bubble yes, under? Yes, I the am. Next and book? and here's the fun part of it is that when if you know when you take the word forensics and you just remember it goes back to the Latin word forum, which means like the public forum, like the courts. In other words, anything that becomes something that law needs to address becomes forensic, so to speak. So with the proliferation of technology that we're seeing, just extraordinary, whether it's people, you know, chasing fantasy creatures with Pokemon, or whether it's um, just the things that you read about in current crime cases, or, or technology the military is using, anything becomes fair game for using it either to create havoc or chaos Technology is the golden goose, and it just keeps laying bigger golden eggs. And while it scares the hell out of me in the real world, it's it's a, a it's just amazing for me in fiction. And that's what people are going to see in chaos. I have a weapon in there that is actually already being used. Um, it's just a lot of people don't know about it, and and everything I say in here is possible. Wow! It has if this particular thing hasn't happened yet. Uh, this type of crime, but there are similar things that already are. And it's all because of what we can do. And that's what I'm going to keep pointing my finger at. Well, we'll, we'll come on to some of those forensic golden eggs a, a little bit later and obviously talk about chaos. But just before we talk about the, the new book, um, I'm always interested, as, as, as a writer of a series myself, I'm always interested in talking to writers about how they feel when they go back to those characters. If they've taken a break, they do something else, or it's been a year or two. Is it kind of like hooking up with an old friend? Is it sort of... Is is it difficult sometimes if you've been away? Is it like, hey, where, where have you been? How are you doing? Or, or is she in your head all the time? Well, it gets close to, you know, they say there's a thin blue line between, you know, police and the people who do it, where there's a thin blue line, so to speak, between delusion and projecting in a creative way. Because these characters do sort of solicit human responses from you as if they're real in the sense that... Um, Yes, I do miss the characters if I spend too much time away from actually writing about them. And I tend to think thoughts that they would think, like I'll look at something and say, oh, that's exactly what Marino would, would go by. Oh, that's the hat that Kay would wear. Or that's the car Lucy would drive. So they're always sort of with me. Um, so it is a little bit like having some sort of relationship. In fact, I've always said that writing really is not a job. It is a relationship. It for that matter, sometimes it doesn't talk to you just like people don't. You know, when you sit at your computer and it's like, okay, you're supposed to walk into the room now and discuss what the lab just did with that piece of trace evidence and nobody shows up. Well, they, they didn't bother to send me a note and say they aren't going to show up at my office that morning. Right. But and that's they, what they do. It's just a Have bad day at the office, right? Yeah, of course. And, yes. and, and that's the weird thing that I think readers don't often appreciate, that it is, it's a job like any other job. You, you put your butt in the chair and you, but sometimes you have a bad day at work, right? Nothing happens and there's no, you know, a decent sentence to. And I think it's important that everybody out there knows that even people who appear to be very prolific like me have very bad days where the characters don't talk to me. I can't focus. It's like I look at it as, you know, Alice going through the looking glass. You're going through a portal into that parallel universe where this story is happening. Heming, you know, Hemingway writes some beautiful passages about that experience in his book, The Garden of Eden. 
and you're, you're going into this other place. And when you get there, it's really good, and you're really writing some great stuff. But sometimes, as all these thickets have grown up over the night, and I can't find my way, and I can't get back to that other place. And it all it happens to all of us. And what do you do when that happens? Do you, do you walk away? Do you go to the gym? Do you go for a run? Do you leave it a couple of days? Do you, is there some kind of displacement activity until it comes back? Well, I've learned one thing for sure. I know when to just leave it alone. And sometimes if I'm too busy for it, it says, just don't bother. Like, like if I'm on book tour, there is no point right. in my trying to write right now. Um, and the other thing I've learned, though, is go back to where it was working. What, whatever place you are in in that story, it might be page one, it might be page 200. Go back to where it was working. Make sure you remember the story if you've been going away from it. Maybe go back to the beginning. But sometimes the only way I can go forward is I have to go back. And then the momentum of it pushes it ahead again. Um, but you, it, you have to be patient with it. Let it tell you what it wants you to do and then abide by it or it won't cooperate. And to, and to what extent is, I mean, I know this is a question you've probably been asked a hundred times, Patricia, but what, to what extent is Kay an extension of you? You put Kay through a lot of stuff. She's been through some stuff. You've been through some stuff. You put yourself in the position she's in, in terms of research terms and so on. So where does Patricia end and Kay begin? Well, that's another one of these strange questions. It's like a shipwreck that after a while, the concretion, you can't tell the metal hull from all the crap around it. Okay. And I'm becoming more a concretion of my characters and myself. But I think it's inevitable when you create a character and you live with that character as long as I've lived with Scarpetta in particular, at the same time that I've been creating her and continue to create her, she's creating me. Because so much of what I learn is because I've had to learn it in order to be her on the page. That inevitably has changed me into an investigative person who's a bit of an expert in these fields when I dropped science in college. How did that happen? I wouldn't even go to funerals. And, and, and then I became a computer programmer in a morgue because I wanted to write those stories that badly. So all of that has changed who I am. And so while she has become probably nothing like me, I've become more like her. It's not fair. But actually... <laughs> It's a good person to want to be like. But with it goes lots of textures in my personality and in my moods that maybe I don't like so much because of the exposures that I've had. Well, it, there's an interesting thing. On your Twitter profile, you say in a kind of, I'm sure, in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, I think, uh, wherever my muse takes me. But you seem anything but that kind of a writer, the kind of airy-fairy waiting for the ideas to come down on fairy dust and stuff muse kind of right you know you go out and now you do i'm going to change stuff. that that is yeah that i i thought it was funny for, no, I, no i now that i'm going to change that because i didn't realize anybody would interpret that way but you're right that it's i sound like an alien harp waiting for a breeze to come through the window right but i know you're not that kind of writer that's that's the reason the only reason i mentioned it i thought it was kind of tongue-in-cheek because you you go out there and you do this stuff yeah. You know, you go out there and you're, and you're, you know, there's all these videos on your Twitter feed of you out doing the kind of stuff that Scarpetta does but and you putting yourself. Ju- but you've just, you have told me something I've never thought of before because you are absolutely right. Most people assume writers are dictated to by inspiration. Oh, it's nonsense. Isn't when it? I think of a muse, a muse to me is a medical examiner, it's a coroner, it's a police investigator, it's whatever my research is doing. Right. But you've made me realize that my, that's a myopic point of view and I'm going to change that. And you, and you keep watching because it's going to be something different well i might have to give you a footnote okay thank you well i know i've I've, you know we've all met these writers who talk about channeling characters voices and this kind of nonsense when as you say your muse is a you know a forensic examiner or a cop or somebody that you've gone out and worked with and talked to and that that's doing a job that's not sitting there waiting for 
you know, I got kidnapped by all those people a long time ago, and I've still not come up from air, for air. So that's well, really what we're talking about. But that's a good about. muse, a series of muses, uh, you know, hard-assed muses, I think. They're not going to, you know, they'll kick your butt if you don't kind of listen to them. That's I not... like being surrounded by people that will kick, <laughs> kick someone's butt if it needs it. Then I don't have to do it, and I'm not as capable of it anyway. I, so. I want to talk a bit about, about style. You, you've moved backwards and forwards in terms of... Uh, your use of tense uh, and your use of you know uh, first person, third person, and, and chaos very much in the first person. I, I'm a fan of first person. I think it's a kind of there's an immediacy to it and whatever. I just wanted to read you something because just because I think you'll find it funny, and I just wondered how you would react to, if you, you received some. This was a letter my agent received, an email my agent received after my last book. He said after reading and enjoying Mark's books, I was very disappointed to find that his latest is written in the present tense, a trendy and pretentious style of writing which I detest. Please ask him not to do it again. <laughs> How would you respond to that kind of... Do you engage with readers on that kind of level on, on Facebook and Twitter and email and so on? Um, I, I, occasionally I will. It depends. Um, I'm not as... Uh, I'm probably not as bold as some other people who will just really address the trolls out there. I tend to... And I'm not saying that's a troll. That's somebody voicing an opinion. But you know what I'm saying. People who can be really brutal. A strange opinion, do you not think? But, well, that <laughs> I don't agree with that opinion. And here's why. The tense and the point of view are all part of the whole content of what you're doing. And the story and what you're... It should dictate the form. The form should not dictate the story. So, for example... I think what this person's trying to say, if you're using present tense to be trendy, but the story is, it doesn't really want to be told that way, um, then maybe that becomes pretentious. But my guess is if you have a good instinct, and I, have, I can already tell that you do, you're doing what seems to make sense, what feels right. You're using your intuition as an author and as a creative person. So um, the reason I use present tense is not to be trendy because I don't even I didn't know it was a trend. No, that Did was the you? thing. I absolutely I no idea that it was, it was trendy. If only I'd have been. And by the way, I'm glad we're trendy. Mark. I'd have been doing Isn't that it great? sooner. Yeah, absolutely. See, I would have done it sooner too if I'd known I was trendy. But I have, you know, people are 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 very much into television and the immediacy of music and binge watching shows and the arts. And you know, it's always been said that all art aspires to music, and I think also to the visual media that we have today. And so. If you're writing in present tense, and I also have shortened my chapters, and I try to be much more visual because I am trying to be more cinematic. So that's why I do it. And, I, and, and it's not about a trend. And my guess is when you're sitting down and doing your writing, you're influenced by other art forms too. And it's subconscious. You don't even realize you're doing it, but you are. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it, it dictates itself. I've been writing something in third person, and suddenly, without noticing I've done it, I've started, I've moved into the, into the first person. I suddenly realized because that's what it's meant that's to be. That's what you want to be, and, and you that's go back what and, it wants to be. But it's pretentious and trendy, right? There well, you go. We've been told. Well. Uh, so let's talk about curse. There's a fantastic line right at the start of the book. When things are bad, they're normal. When they're worse, they're good. And, you know, I get that as a crime writer completely. I completely understand. But what's that mean to Kay? I mean, this is something that, that defines Kay's life on a daily basis, isn't it? It means she lives an inside-out world in every way imaginable, including that the human body is inside-out for her. And so her inside-out existence is when things are good, they're bad, and when things are bad, they're good. And it's always the same side of the same, a different side of the same coin for her. And so, you know, if, if nobody ever died and there was no disaster, she'd have no profession. And she'd also have nothing that keeps her curiosity spinning, you know, at, at Mach 3 all the time. But at this, by the same token, 
She doesn't get, oh, geez, it's Labor Day weekend. That means I can relax and go out on the boat and it's going to be great. Because she goes, oh, crap. It means I'm going to have three times as many horrible deaths as I usually do. But, you know, at least I know what I'm doing this weekend. So, so. it just changes the way she gets up in the morning, the, the first thought she has when she gets up. I mean, it kind of defines every moment, right? Well, you know, be careful who you pick as your monster when you're a little kid because you will live with that monster forever. And her monster as a child was death because death took her father and she lived with her father's dying. And so she created a, the monster of becoming this expert in the very thing. Well, no, she became the dragon slayer of this monster or tried to, but you can't kill that monster. It will never go away. Because death is here, and it's part of life, and it's and so, but that created her, and and so while we want her to do this, and we need her to do this to, to protect us and help us with this monster that's out there. By that same token, it's always in her closet, and she wishes it wasn't. Now the opening, so the opening of chaos is it's it's very claustrophobic. It's incredibly hot, unseasonably hot weather in in Massachusetts. She's walking to meet her husband for lunch she's kind of not her usual she's not particularly composed she's sweating bullets it's but and there's a lot of stuff unfolding around her that she doesn't really know about yet she's certainly going to find out so where's kind of where's Scarpetta's state of mind at the start of this book well her state of mind at the beginning of this book is is um, a very distracted one because she's a little bit on edge because she's been asked to speak at the, the Kennedy School of Government and that's a really big deal and the thing that she's addressing is the Columbia Space Shuttle incident because the forensic pathology and the forensic science that was used in the recovery of the, of the crew who were scattered over 50 miles of Texas, you know, when that shuttle disintegrated on reentry, um, it's, it's, very sci- it's interesting very scientifically, and I actually personally know a fair amount about it um, from reading about it and so forth. So she's going to be talking about that using that case to talk about modern forensics. So she's thinking about that, and she's sort of rehearsing it in her mind. She's supposed to meet her husband for dinner. Suddenly her sister is coming to town from Miami, and there's something very odd about that. And Marino's been acting weird and is, is badgering her, and suddenly someone's calling in and accusing her of doing something she didn't do. So she's got all hell breaking loose. So you've got it, it's like there are these distant rumbles of thunder that she can't, that she can't quite very hear. very well put because... The big storm's about to happen. Right. And and this body is discovered, which it appears, it appears that, that this person has been struck by lightning very kind of oddly, uh, uh, you know, quite literally a bolt from the blue. And, and you know, uh, Scarpetta at some point will start to, to realise that's, that's not what it is, that there are other things going on. But is that very much kind of what you wanted to explore, the idea that science... Will will ultimately crack what appears to be the most unscientific and just natural, like an act of God. But it but it's anything but, and science will crack that. I mean, was that was that the kind of the the, the kernel of the idea for this well, book? In science and technology, if we do it right, those are what we can trust. But what you have to always remember and. And, and is easily forgotten is you have to add that to the human factor, or you have no primer for your bullet. It won't fire. Because technology and science, like science might tell you that somebody died from this, but it might be totally wrong what you're thinking is how that happened or who did it. So science is, is the first stepping stone to get on a firm landing and say, clearly there's evidence of a burn here, in which this victim has, or there's evidence that you know, she was thrown from her bicycle you know, and she, she has some, you know, some, some trauma from that. You, know, you begin to get some things that you know are stepping stones to lead you closer to the truth, but then you've got to do a lot of other things to figure out what that really means. 
So science is so much fun. And what I do with it these days is I use it to make you think something, and especially her. And then it's, nah, mm-mm, that's not what really happened here, Kay. You better dig a little bit more. And she must hate me by now, you know, because <laughs> I really put her through it every book. And this one, when she actually goes into the transmission electron microscope room to see what something is that she recovered from the burn, now she's going to be in for the biggest shock of all because it doesn't make any sense. There are plenty of shocks. We will try, obviously, not to give those away. <laughs> um, now we come to our regular feature in which a stab in the dark's roving reporter catches up with some of those who bring us the very best crime fiction on the page and on the screen. <laughs> Yes, thanks, Mark. I'm here with actor William Gaminara, who played Leo Dalton in the hugely popular Silent Witness for over a decade. Now, forensic investigation is a fairly recent subgenre in crime drama, but it's proved to be hugely popular. So what does William think it is about forensic science that draws the viewers in? In Silent Witness and the forensic programmes like it, what you've got is a, a very familiar genre, which is the crime drama, and you have a puzzle at the beginning of the story and you just watch the puzzle being solved. And we're used to seeing that with people like Sherlock Holmes, very clever um, detectives who are working things out. And this, these programmes are no different from that. The only difference is the clever people, instead of being police, are the pathologists. Also, throw in, it's, it's quite gory. And for some people, that in itself is, is, is appealing. Yes, absolutely. That's one of the reasons. But another reason I think crime fiction and drama is so popular is that they offer resolutions to some pretty awful situations. Now, you could say that about forensic science too. It seeks to provide answers to what was previously unanswerable. It feels like a good crossover. So what are the differences between traditional crime and forensic crime stories? I mean, conventionally in drama, the clues come from outside. They come from, as I say, with Sherlock Holmes, you look around the room and you see that the curtains have been moved or that the doors open ajar and it's been locked from the inside or whatever it is. We tended not to use that kind of clue in the series and, and, and the kind of unique selling point of it is that the clues come from the body so that you can look at um, I know, the maggots that uh, have, have arrived on a, on a human body uh, after its death and you can put them under a microscope and you can work out how large they are and from that work out exactly how long the body's been dead. And that kind of thing is interesting to a member of the public because it's true and it's a bit gruesome, but it's actually very revealing. Harrison Ford tells this story of reading the Star Wars script for the very first time and saying to George Lucas, George, you can type this, you know what, but you can't say it. I was wondering how William felt when he first read the script to Silent Witness with all its technical forensics jargon. Well, luckily, I'd, I've played quite a lot of doctors before on telly, and I've also come from a medical family. I've got a sister who's a doctor, my mother was a doctor, so that kind of jargon is flying around. It also meant that I had a readily available source, someone I could go to and say, listen, how do you say this? What's the correct way? So... That was helpful. I always mark up my... When I got scripts, I marked them up very early on and thought, that, that scene is going to take some learning. I've really got to get my head around that. Because you know that on the day, once you get to actually film a scene, there are going to be so many other things going on that you can't be worrying about this seven-syllable word you've got to say. It's got to be completely automatic. But even you know, allowing for all that, there were certain scenes, right till the very end, where I had to take a deep breath because 
there was a good chance that some, a syllable would go wrong at some point. They, they were tricky. But it's not just about pronouncing technical words right on the page. There's always a balancing act between fictional stories and the real world to achieve. So how does Silent Witness get it so right? On the three or four days where you do the pathology scenes and the autopsies, um, there's always a genuine pathologist in attendance. So at the start of the day, you'll talk through the scene, ask them any questions you might have about you know, how to say these things, what they mean, uh, and then they'll show you what utensils you'll be using, exactly what you would be doing at that point, and you basically try and replicate that. That was Silent Witness's Dr Nice actor William Gaminara. And you can watch Silent Witness on drama every Sunday at nine. So, Patricia, let's talk about some of the, the TV dramas that are, that are set in the sort of professional world that Kay Scarpetta inhabits. Do you watch the, like, these shows, the likes of CSI and Dexter and Rosewood uh, or Silent Witness we have here in the UK? And, and, and if you do, can you recognise Kay and her world in those dramas? Does it, does, it, does it make you feel that you've influenced those dramas? I mean, you clearly have. Well, I, well for, I, I think that the, my work absolutely has influenced those dramas only you know, for the simple reason that when I started doing all this, forensic science and forensic medicine were very inaccessible to people. They were morbid, ghoulish, weird, and looking at instruments that make no sense to you. Nobody was interested in that. And my going in and trying to translate that into something that made sense in the entertainment business opened the door for other people to, to do the same thing. And so that's really my part that I played. It's not that I invented any of this stuff. Um, I'm actually quite jealous I didn't think of these shows before they did. Um, but I don't watch a lot of them. I did watch Dexter uh, just because... This, that was less forensics and more about that character right. and what drove him. And you didn't feel bad about most of the people he got rid of, let's be honest. So that was a really... <laughs> and I went, rats, I not only should have thought of that show, I'm afraid he and Scarpetta might be friends. And she just says, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. <laughs> it's weird you keep dropping in... It's like Scarpetta's talking to you. I don't, I don't mean that you time. are being possessed by Scarpetta here in this office, but you know, you will talk about her in the, you know, like she's a friend, like she'll say that to me, she'll be pissed with me, she'll. I'm playful about it. Uh, yeah, and, but, but I don't really, she, I don't channel her, but so much because no. I can't, I, I can't pronounce most of the words. She's way smarter than I am, and I, I am. In fact, when I people ask me to read, I have to look at it first because if it's a passage where it's her thinking in Italian, I can't pronounce Italian worth crap. And if it's her with one of her humongous words, you know, you know, um, one of these big scientific terms that that the root in Latin half times I can't pronounce that right either. So but I can be playful with her in an apologetic way of saying, sorry, I do this to you. So when you if you do see some of these shows, I mean, I know that the that, that forensic professionals, some of them kind of bemoan the fact that these shows kind of, I don't know cheapen what they do or make it into kind of entertainment in some way that it's that it's so far removed from forensic reality and from real science as to be kind of ridiculous you know and you get that sort of csi effect when you know i've i've heard people say well you know you know if someone's been in a room just by taking a sample of the air you can and i mean i know it's entertainment but does that as you've had first-hand experience of it does that kind of cheese you off a bit um not i don't really care i mean it's you know the, the only reason it becomes an issue in our society with shows like CSI, it's not the fault of the show. It's just simply the reality that that this is a world that is not part of everybody's common day experience. So where that becomes problematic then is people who are on juries 
Right. They make these decisions based on what they've seen on TV. But if you ask me, that's not the fault of TV. That's the fault of prosecutors and defense attorneys who are not well-versed in this enough to make the jury understand that's not true. I would, if I were doing voir dire, you know, I would ask every juror, do you watch these shows? Do you believe that they, they are factual? And then I'd be really careful about who I pick for juries based on some of that. I mean, come on. TV's not responsible for what you do in the courtroom. Take charge of your own destiny there. But in, ter- in terms of the way this stuff feeds into your books, uh, you were talking about these, these advances, and you, and, and, and you clearly like to sort of keep on, you know, abreast of what is happening and stuff that's developing. And as you say, in chaos, there's a weapon which, you know, without giving anything away, there's this fairly <laughs> shocking, frightening weapon uh, that, you know, is possibly just around the corner or, or even here. Or other, other types of things anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, it must be a kind of a, a great day when you come across something that you think, nobody's written about that. This is, well, we, I can well, use to be this. honest with you, what we do is we invent things. And I say we because I have consultants. And I have right. highly technical people that I consult with. And we design, like this thing in, in this book, I don't know something exactly like that out there. And, and hopefully not. But I, I come up with something that you could do. And, and the main thing that you're using is a technology that's already being used and, in fact, already being abused by people. I'm not, this is not an original weapon. It's just what I do with it is original. Right. And I also try to create things that are not easily imitated for good reason. I don't want to make something real simple for someone to do. To, to, I mean, you, I do have a certain ethical obligation to not try to inspire people to do something terrible. And actually, I've, I struggle with this when I start every book. Because I come up with something, and I'm, I'm in the midst of it right now as we speak, where I want to make sure I don't give somebody a very easy recipe for doing something horrible. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the middle of that struggle right now. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about it, to be honest, for this new book that I'm researching. I don't think crime and mystery writers can ever be held responsible for that kind of thing. Do you know what? The sort of people that are, that are, that are likely to, to do that kind of thing, they're not, they're not going to read You give them a book, they're going to eat it. They're not going to read it. Well, hopefully most of these people who want to do that stuff don't read my books anyway. Right, right. But it, it's not even about what other people think. It's what I think. It's what I live with. It's just always been the way I am, and probably it's because the six years that I worked in the morgue, I can remember, um, you know, in one of my early Scarpetta books, dealing with the toxicologist upstairs, in discussing a way of creating a poison but changing the molecular structure of it just enough that what I put in the book really wouldn't work. It, I did the same thing in, um, uh, let's see, Unnatural Exposure, where I'm using the smallpox as a weapon. Mm. You know, back in the days when everybody said that biology would never be used as a weapon and they didn't mind showing me all this, and it's like, uh, that was wrong, right? <laughs> but I created something that actually wouldn't work if you wanted to do it today and create, you know, kill lots of people. People don't even know that I do this, but I am diffusing my own weapons behind the scenes in a fictitious way of trying to create something that is within the realm of possibility, but I'm going to do a little something just to make just, sure just it doesn't work Just a little tweak so it's not a oh, textbook. Yeah. Yes, it doesn't work. Um, and remarkably, <laughs> remarkably, it seems to me, the, 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 the Case Carpetta books have still not been adapted for TV or film yet. They've, obviously, there have been approaches uh, over the years, are you protective of her? Is it that this isn't going to happen until it's perfect? I don't have that kind of control over it. The honest truth of it is it's, ran, it's chaos that's caused this not to be a movie right. so far. And um, it's been one script after another that doesn't work. We are now, you know, the first option for Scarpetta going to film was in 1989. Wow. And ever since then, there have been, it's gone from one thing to another, but in the last 
going on. We're now entering year seven with Fox 2000, but I do think it's going to happen with right. them. And we, I know we, they have a script now, and they're working with that. And I think that they're that Fox is is beginning to move things forward. So I'm hoping that within the next six months or so, we actually hear some news about all this. Okay. So you know, we're getting we're getting closer. It's not for lack of trying. And is there is there an actress in your in your mind for Scarpetta? Has there been in the past, and maybe that's changed or? I don't, you know, I think there's a number of people out there right now that could do an amazing job playing Scarpetta. I really do. Um, a lot of powerful women playing powerful roles. And so I, I really look forward to seeing who that is. I'm not completely obsessively bent on any one person, and that's probably a good thing. I want somebody who really becomes her. It's not about me loving a certain actress. I want that person for me to watch it and forget it is an actress and to really think that I'm seeing Scarpetta for the first time. Because remember, I've never met her either. Right. And that's going to be really, really weird for me. Yeah, I mean, do you think if if and when this happens, it will be hard then to write Scarpetta without having that actress? Not, in I don't know that it'll be hard, but I think it, but that'll be interesting. I don't know the answer to that. Right. And I will adapt accordingly. I'll do the best I can, but I, I can only fundamentally change Scarpetta but so much without it becoming weird for the book. So I doubt it will influence me too terribly, but I, I, I do learn from the process. You know, like just even dealing with some of the screenwriters yeah. They they ask me questions about Scarpetta and the characters that I've never thought of before, and it causes me to learn new things about them too. Well, as we, as we head towards the end of the end of the episode, you've you know pretty much single handedly kickstarted this entire subgenre of of mystery fiction, the, the forensic mystery, uh, and obviously a lot of people are now writing those kind of books and 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 the TV shows that spin out of them. What kind of state do you think that subgenre is in now? You know, however far on we are now from from postmortem, what are we? Well, if you years? want me to be really honest about it, um, it's if you really if anybody wants to continue doing that sort of thing, then you're going to have to go with all the trends in technology, or it becomes dated really quickly. So I think if you're going to choose to do that, or people who do it like I do it, um, it's a horse you just can never get off of because otherwise, it you can't keep writing about the same technology when people have been saturated with it anyway on television. So what I've been forced to do, for example, is to get away from the procedural where I'm going to spend a whole book telling you how to investigate fires and, but get it more about the character and what it's like to be these people who are doing this um, to make it less the very CSI type of thing that it, it created ironically. So so for you, people will see in chaos, for example, you are so inside this woman's skin. You feel the grass under your feet. You feel the heat. You feel the sweat. But you also see the way her mind works. And sure, I give you all the technology, but I'm more focused on letting you know what it feels like to be her. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, technology, of, even, at the, even at the cutting edge, will date at yes, some point. But characters don't. It's that's a character exactly that people right. remember, right? That's right. I mean, it always amazes me when people will read a, a mystery novel set in, set in the 80s. Uh, and because they're so used to having the technology, they go, they're going, where are all the cell phones? Why, no, they, we didn't have those back then or whatever it might be, or, or CCTV footage or whatever it is. And, and that technology does end up kind of dating stuff. And that's what you know as a writer, and you're absolutely right about that, because you've sat down the same way I have and realized I can't keep using this because it's getting worn out. So what, i got to do something different now. And I faced that you know, when the CSI thing got so big and I realized people don't need 20 pages on how this thing works because they watch it on TV. They know an autopsy table is steel. How many times do you have to say it? Yeah. It's the character. It's the character character. development. That's what they want. So in terms of that character, what next for for Kay? What next for Patricia? 
the aftermath of chaos, which will be plenty more of it, I have no doubt. So I'm in the early stages of, of getting into all that. Okay, well, uh, that will be, what, a year away, two years away? At least a year away. Okay, okay. Uh, well, but for now you have chaos. Um, and now I've promised... And the new Jack the Ripper book coming out in January. Oh, is that? Too. Oh, tell us a bit about that. Yes, well, this is the remake I that I thought everyone... it was case closed, Patricia. I no, thought it was case I closed. I was wrong about that. I've taken ah. it out of the title. That was a... It's not case closed. Oh, oh so case reopened and maybe closed case again. Been, yes, I have been working on it on and off ever since the first book came out. And since 2012, I've been working on it, you know, hugely full of lots of new evidence, new photographs, all kinds of stuff. It's called Ripper, The Secret Life of Walter Sickert, and it's coming out in January, so people should watch for it. Well, now, as promised, um, in every episode we ask our guests to come along with some recommendations for a, for a good read and a good, good watch. Patricia, what any forensic crime you've, you've recently read that you'd recommend to our listeners? I don't have anything recent, but my but I, I think Silence of the Lambs is still one of the best oh, crime it? novels I've ever isn't read. It? And I also love In Cold Blood, and anybody hasn't read Truman Capote's. I mean, those two, to me, are standalone. I mean, they're books that I wish I'd written. And that's like the biggest thing I could ever say is that I'm just freaking jealous of them. They're yeah. so awesome. You can't argue with either of those, absolutely. I mean, in fact, if you're listening to this right now and you haven't read those books, shame on you. Uh, but go out and read them right now. And what about uh, what about something visual? What about a crime show or a movie you've enjoyed recently? In terms of modern stuff, I love The Good Wife, and I was really sad when it went off the air. Did that ever? I don't know if that ever oh, showed. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, show over here. And I thought that was just a really one more of a legal thriller, but lots of cool forensics in it too. And I loved that show. Oh well, there you go. Some fantastic recommendations there. Sadly, that is about it for this episode. In fact, for this series of A Stab in the Dark, we hope to be back with more crime-filled episodes soon. But until then, you can find out more about A Stab in the Dark and enter some great book competitions, find links and information about all the things we've discussed today at uktv.co.uk slash astabinthedark, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag astabinthedark. Finally, don't forget to review us on your podcast app and recommend us to your friends, or if you're not a fan, recommend it to people you don't like. We're not fussy. So with that, it's a huge thank you to my very special guest, Patricia Cornwell, whose latest novel, Chaos, is out now, published by HarperCollins. And thanks to our producers, Sam Pearson and Paul Hirons. My name's Mark Billingham. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.